You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 7th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. Hello, it's Saturday the 7th of March. This is Monocle's House View. Today, Elizabeth Warren bows out of the race to the White House, but she's not done yet. We'll know that we can have a woman in the White House when we finally elect the woman to the White House, right? That's what it's going to take. We'll consider what the end of another hugely qualified women's presidential campaign says about the state of politics. Plus, how responsible journalism can help combat dangerous misinformation and rising panic as the coronavirus spreads. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning from London. I'm Georgina Godwin and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Now we're looking at Elizabeth Warren and it is also a day before International Women's Day. So I'm pleased to tell you that it's an all-woman panel here in the studio and indeed behind the glass our engineer today is a woman too. So uh, Elizabeth Braw leads the Modern Deterrence Programme at RUSI and Florence Biedemann is the London Bureau Chief for the AFP. Welcome to you both. Uh, Now, when Hillary Clinton lost the US election to Donald Trump or allegedly lost the election to Donald Trump in 2016, there were many who feared that it could take a generation for any party to nominate another woman. The rise of Elizabeth Warren gave many people some hope. Alas, as we now know, it was not to be. This week, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow asked Elizabeth Warren whether the end of her campaign meant that, from now on, all elections will be fought between two white men in their 70s. Here's what Senator Warren had to say. Here's how I see this. You get in this fight, you know when you go into it. There were multiple people who just said, this will be part of the problem. But you get in the fight because you just got to keep beating at it until you finally break the thing. We'll know that we can have a woman in the White House when we finally elect the woman to the White House, right? That's what it's going to take. But we're not electing a woman to the White House, and we didn't in 2016. Do you think, Florence, that Hillary Clinton didn't get in because she was a woman, and has that now influenced Elizabeth Warren? It may have played a role, although it's difficult really to assess. I mean, for for this election, I I think it's a bit different because... um, the opponent of the Democrat is Donald Trump. I think what was really dominating the uh, this uh, Democrat uh, uh, campaign now is the fact that you 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 must by any mean uh, uh, counter this guy. So uh, the electorate is going, the delegates are going to choose someone who they think is in the best position to do that. And uh, well, obviously it's not Elizabeth Warren. Maybe also she suffered, she suffered from the fact that she is, let's say, to simplify, on the left lane of the. Dem- Democratic Party and uh, Bernie Sanders was already there when she arrived and was already campaigning. So uh, it it certainly didn't help her. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I I don't see it because she's a woman. And, well, there were six nominees at the start, you know, six women competing, which was more than years before. So, yes, I mean, let's see next time. Hopefully uh, uh, it won't be uh, two 70 years uh, old men uh, competing. Mm. I mean, next time will have to be different and each time women are progressing. Yeah, I mean I think Florence is right in that it it was very much about who could beat Trump but Hillary Clinton said that Warren was the victim of unconscious and gendered language. Do you think that's true? 
it may have been true in, in some cases, but I think if you look at why Hillary lost to, to Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, it's uh, first of all, she did win more votes than he did. It's just the Electoral College works the mm. way it does in the US. And then actually she wasn't a, a, a phenomenal campaigner. Uh, she is not a great public speaker, Hillary Clinton. And so... Um, and there were reasons why she lost. And one, one, it's I mean, it's it's futile at this point, but it, it's still uh, interesting to think about what would have happened if another female candidate had run against Donald Trump. Somebody who had been uh, somebody who is a better campaigner. Uh, uh, for, for example, Elizabeth Warren, if she had run uh, in, in that election. And then we must remember that there are uh, female politicians who are formidable campaigners, including Nicola Sturgeon, who I think, regardless of what we think of the SNP, is uh, the UK's most effective politician. She's good at campaigning. She's uh, an effective um, uh, first minister of Scotland. Um, there is probably always going to be well, at least for the next generation, some some uh, bias against women running. But uh, um, as as uh, was already discussed, the, this uh, uh, primary uh, season had a number of, of women running, and and actually a number of them surprised. Uh, in, in the way that, that they they got through to the electorate, Amy Klobuchar, who would have thought that she would last? Mm-hmm. And, and yet she lasted pretty long. Yeah. In terms of, of that kind of gendered language, words that are often used about women, particularly in, in public positions, uh, shrill, too ambitious or needy. Uh, and I think just as, as women who are all really in quite senior positions, uh, as the three of us are, or women who are uh, at, at, really at the top of their career games, uh, or actually one hopes not, we've still got a way to go, haven't we? <laughs> um, but the point is that it's very easy for people to shout us down. And that often happens. People do still try and do it to us in in meetings. Uh, and I find that, that the way that, that one automatically tries to counter that is you're getting louder and as you get louder of course you get more shrill and that is I think at the root of this whole thing of shrill women isn't it Florence? Yeah certainly I mean I saw that in in, in my career which is <clears throat> maybe longer than yours now uh, but still the, uh, yes I, I was supposed to be like bad tempered it's, it's always a question of your personality you know as you say shrill whatever but uh, see I, I see a big improvement in this I mean I, I think you hear this less now I mean everybody's conscious of that so everybody is careful not, not to use that kind of language and um, I, I didn't see that much of a vocabulary uh, for uh, Warren and Club in this campaign, I mean, it's 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 not that dominant anymore. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is an improvement. I see this improvement over the years. What do you find from a personal perspective, Elizabeth? In uh, if if you sit in meetings, for example, or or in conferences, or or uh, any events where there's a, a mix of people speaking, um, I have found that uh, so I used to wait for my turn, used to sort of indicate I want to say something, and then invariably some men would would jump in without having indicated that they wanted to speak. They would just sort of jump in, and now I do the same. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and you you just have to fight, and and actually, I, I think there. I'm I'm not going to say that the gender equality battle has been won, but as um, as was said just a minute ago, it has improved a lot in in recent years. And if I may make a different observation, I think that the big inequality we face today is inequality in background. So um, if 
if you're not from a, a background of, of uh, higher education, if you come from a working class family, I think you will have a much harder time getting ahead than the people from, from better off families. And so uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a man or a woman in, in either group. Uh, if, if you come from a disadvantaged background, uh, that is the, the big liability you have. Mm. And, and women from, from well-off, well-educated backgrounds um, do actually have pretty good opportunities today. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. Let's, let's just return to Warren because she still has some, some leverage in this race because we don't yet know who she's going to support, do we, Florence? Yes, I mean, you, you would tend to think she would support, and that's what he was hoping, Bernie Sanders, because of her anti-corruption campaigning, because of her more liberal ideas, and it would certainly be a boost for him. Uh, but in the end, whether it would be enough to 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 make him win uh, uh, the nomination is, is really a, a question, because... Everybody tends to think that Joe Biden is in a better position because he's a moderate to to go and face Trump. Again, it's all about beating Trump. Mm. Could Warren be Biden's running mate? I think it's uh, they would make a very good Mm. pair. There doesn't seem to be a a great deal of love lost between the the two of them, I think, simply because they they were fighting uh, for the same electorate and... and, um, uh, and it might also be a mistake to have two people who have so who have such similar views. When really, if Sanders, Bernie Sanders, were to be the nominee, he needs uh, somebody who can appeal to to the moderate uh, part of the American electorate because he he it's it's clear that he will never win swing voters. He will, he will win uh, voters who are already uh, on 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 the left uh, center. Well, on the left side of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I think we've we've been avoiding the, the elephant in the room, which is Trump, <laughs> but also what Trump is saying about the other huge story, coronavirus. The only thing that's spreading faster than the COVID-19 virus at the moment is panic, and it's really not very helpful. Australia has found itself in the grip of a shortage of loo roll due to panic buying, prompting the state premier of Victoria to issue some stern words via Twitter, uh, saying... I know people are concerned and I don't want this to come across as insensitive in any way, the Premier wrote. But it's worth remembering that there's a difference between being prepared and panicking. What we're seeing in our supermarkets at the moment is not helpful for anyone, especially people who already struggle to get to the shops or afford groceries. Um, and I think that we, we might need more blunt words from, from leaders like that right now, Florence. Yeah, I mean, I heard like in some little villages in the UK, which is one of the least affected countries so far, I mean, Europe, one of the, uh, with two dead uh, only, let's say, uh, there are some shops that are empty. So definitely there are some parts of countries which are panicking. Uh, I think the more you talk about it, the more you explain about the contagion, about how the symptoms, uh, all the measures that are being taken by all governments, people will tend to be a little more reassured. And Obviously, once there is a vaccination, uh, the the whole panic will stop. Mm. But the question being, you don't know, it's 
probably a question of months. And there is also the idea that maybe this virus is seasonal like the flu, which means in spring, summer, it would, uh, it would be uh, less, uh, less virulent. So there are some reasons like to, 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 to be calm, but obviously, I mean, the markets are not. Obviously, it has already a huge impact. Uh, the, the only idea now is how, how you contain this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump has said some extraordinary things, Elizabeth. On Wednesday, he claimed that Obama's that Obama's administration's policy had been had made testing more difficult. Uh, he has said that uh, he went on Fox News on Wednesday night. He gave multiple rambling answers to questions about the outbreak. And at one point, he talked about people who might go to work when when they're mildly ill. I mean, just all sorts of <laughs> very odd things. He lashed out at the media when they when they got back at him. Uh, he's bragging about how successful he's been at stopping the spread of the virus, even as the numbers grow in the states. This isn't harmless. It's it's very, very damaging, isn't it? It is. And it's what's what's more harmless than the spread of the virus itself is the, these um, conflicting narratives about what's going on. And, and if I may add one more thing he said, he said this, I haven't touched my face in weeks. <laughs> and so... As, as we all know, you're not supposed to touch your face because that brings the, the, the germs from your hands to somewhere near your mouth. But anybody but, who watches Donald Trump will see him <laughs> repeatedly rubbing his nose, for instance. Yeah. Exactly. And so that was uh, one of his many lies. Uh, uh, and this one was particularly easy to prove. But... So the, the problem is, what are national leaders are supposed to do? Are they supposed to, to issue warnings like, like the Australian prime minister? Are they supposed to um, uh, maybe uh, not issue warnings telling people to, to not to panic? Are they, uh, are they supposed to tell people to, to take precautions? It's very hard to, to strike that balance. And if I may um, bring up one additional perspective. The, the problem that we have in our wealthy countries is that we are so used to everything functioning perfectly all the time so when, that when any contingency happens, we panic. If you remember when uh, there was a 15-minute power cut in the UK that affected one and a half million people and uh, a number of train lines, people panicked and there were uh, headlines along the lines of apocalyptic scenes at King's Cross. Well, there was a 15-minute power cut <laughs> and and. So same, the same thing when the O2 network went down for one day. I'm an O2 customer. Yeah, it was a bit inconvenient, but it's not the end of the world. But we are so dependent on everything functioning perfectly all the time that we panic because we are simply too spoiled. And I think actually this is a good reminder that we can't expect our society to function perfectly all the time. And maybe this will, I mean, I'm not saying we should be preppers, but we should know what to do in a crisis and we should know what to do when the virus strikes because this is not going to be the last. Mm. I mean, the uh, philosopher A.C. Grayling says that basically he feels that the, the, the fabric of our lives is going to change and that it may be no bad thing. So, for instance, when you look at things like uh, pollution lessening over China uh, because of obviously much less industry happening, almost no industry happening, uh, you look at that, you look at the way we shop, you look at the way we prepare for things, uh, you look at also the way we travel, which, of course, again has an impact on, on, on the climate crisis. Uh, maybe all of this is necessary resetting 
for the human race. That would, that would be ideal, George. <laughs> I'm afraid, yes, like w we have some uh, restrictions right now. I'm pretty sure as soon as uh, there is not such fear, it will be back to normal and China will pollute again. <laughs> we will take the, the trains. And uh, But yeah, it's it's always interesting to have a reminder that you, you can have like slower like growth or traveling or a different uh, uh, kind of life. Uh, I'm not sure it will have an, an impact on the long term though mm -hmm. as, as head of modern deterrence <laughs> is this something that would come under your remit does disease come as, as part of that elizabeth well all disruption of uh, daily life comes under my remit and it's it's interesting that people are now beginning to to realize that disease is uh, is uh, uh, or presents a problem to our modern society. So a few years ago, when I was still looking at conventional threats against Europe or conventional forms of aggression, I, I was once at a dinner and I was sitting next to a very uh, well-known uh, public health expert. And he said, you know, if Putin really wanted to harm Europe, he would send a plane load of TB-infected prisoners to a European country. And Look at what we are seeing now, um, uh, regardless of where the virus came from, it, this time it's Mother Nature, but you can cause enormous disruption, as we have seen, uh, through disease. And so I'm not, I, I don't think Putin would ever send uh, TB-infected prisoners uh, to, to, uh, to Europe. But we do have to think about um, any form of uh, threat, aggression, uh, contingency that can cause um, disruption to daily life, whether it be a cyber hack that brings down the national grid, whether it be disease, uh, whether it be um, a an, an, an natural disaster like uh, flooding and, um, uh, and other extreme weather events, which will increase as well. And I, th I, uh, it, it's clear that we in the West are woefully underprepared simply because we are so used to just sitting back and hoping for the government to come and help us. Mm -hmm. uh, just reassure me that I'm not alone here. When you see people wearing masks on the tube, don't you want to just kind of pull them and ping them back <laughs> in their face? Because <laughs> they're useless. They well, are. Yeah, but <laughs> you, you see few of them. I mean, uh, that, that's which I find comforting. I mean, at least in London, uh, you see very few people with masks. So which means, yeah, the, the panic is not yet holding its grip on this country. I think it's it's probably different in Italy and obviously in China. Yeah. But it's really keep calm and carry on. Well, but exactly. And, and I mean, that's my point is that we know that masks can't adequately protect you. Uh, we're using, everybody's using hand sanitizer. But I noticed just here and now, I, yes, I sanitize my hand. Then I use the keypad that every single other person who comes into the studio uses to get it to You should access. put gloves, Georgina. <laughs> no, but, but, and here we are sitting in this air-conditioned box in a room where uh, how many people traipse through here every day? I think that we have to be quite sanguine about this. I mean, it's, it's out there. We may have had it already. We probably are going to get it. We're healthy people, uh, luckily for us, because, of course, so many people aren't in this position. We're not going to die from it. It's something that... Uh, that, as you say, Florent, you just have to relax and, yeah, you know, and take reasonable when, precautions. But you when know. you see, like, the two the two people who died in, in this country were pretty old. They had also other conditions. So, you know, which is also kind of a sign that, as you say, it's, uh, it's for... I mean, if you're weakened, if your organism is weakened, yes, you are more prone maybe to, to suffer of it, if not, like... 
Yeah, but in that case, but flu we, might carry you off anyway. I mean, you know. Uh, there is another aspect, if I if I may um, bring us on a slightly different track, which is the reporting about uh, the virus. And having been a journalist, um, I know the pressure to 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 focus on the particular issue that's the leading issue of at the moment. And so if you if journalists want to file something, file stories about something completely different, they'll to know that's that's not going to get any traction. And we, it's it's coronavirus now and mm-hmm. find find stories about the coronavirus. And news organizations are in a operate in a competitive environment. They, they compete both for for attention and uh, in many cases for for advertising revenue. And and so it's for them and Florence can talk more about this but for them it's uh, it, it they are nearly I would say almost forced to to focus on on issues whether or not it's in the public interest because uh, that focus of course drives up panic and news organizations are have a different level take a different level of responsibility some uh, I think are a bit more of of the, of the scandalous persuasion where they engage in in, in really in, in more uh, in creating more panic that than uh, is necessary but still there is this push to focus on whatever the big issue is of the moment and and so I think that has contributed to the situation we are in now and by the way it's not just in in Australia that people are panic buying in in uh, even here in the UK, for example, I was at uh, Sainsbury's last night, and the guy told me, "Yeah, all the uh, all the hand sanitizer uh, is gone, and people are just crazy." And and I thought, <laughs> it's uh, this is the UK with um, I think 153 cases so far. In I know, the- I know, it's crazy. My my partner had to bring some hand sanitizer back from Belgrade for us yesterday. Uh, just before we leave this, and, and and just going back to Australia and loo roll and shortages and also responsible reporting. An Australian newspaper's printed an extra eight pages to be used as toilet paper. Um, and uh, the NT News has provided a practical solution. Uh, they um, On Thursday, there were eight pages in the paper that had been left bare apart from watermarks and a cutout guide. Uh, and uh, it said, um, run out of loo paper, the NT News cares. Uh, that's why we've printed an eight-page special lift-out inside, complete with handy cut lines for you to use in an emergency. The editor of NT News, Matt Williams, certainly said it's not a crappy edition. Now that really is that <laughs> news really that you can way use. to attract readers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, let's have a look at, at what's really in the newspapers, what's been printed apart from the um, the uh, blank space. And of course, we shouldn't forget that it doesn't have to be blank for you to use it as loo paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's. Shall we start with the Times and this extraordinary story about the ruler of Dubai? Now, this is something that started off as just a divorce petition and has absolutely ballooned into something else, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it can. Okay, it's not a diplomatic crisis, but it, it will certainly have an impact uh, on the leaks between uh, the UK and uh, and Dubai. I mean, uh, give it, us the, the nuts and bolts of the yeah, story. Yeah, it appears that uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, um, the, First of all, like uh, a judgment was published uh, on, on on his fight with his wife, like which uh, is getting divorced, uh, and uh, the bad the bad news for for the share was that it was published, although it.
try to to block this publication. So and in in it, you you learn that he has kidnapped two of his daughters uh, over the years, uh, and one in the UK in Cambridge. Uh, one of the story was uh, already uh, pretty famous because one of the daughters was I mean uh, they stopped a boat I think in, in India and they kidnapped her and she was back. So it was something people heard about, but now it's like the. British justice, with all its weight, and uh, who says yes, uh, there are strong, uh, strong elements proving that it happened, uh, and uh, this is a kind of behavior that, of course, is uh, pretty difficult to accept from a man who is very much part of the establishment in this country. Like mm -hmm. you see on the front page of uh, the newspapers, pictures of him uh, shaking hands with the Queen. He's uh, one of the most prominent figure in the horse racing market, uh, like in Newmarket. Market. He has stables, Godolphin, they are very famous. There are lots of investments in this country. So uh, of the fact that he has been, I mean, caught and denounced by, by justice uh, for such activities. Now there is also an investigation in Cambridge. A police investigation is, is pretty uh, uh, upsetting. Also, the fact that this happened in the country uh, I think under a Labour government, and nobody did anything. There was no reaction to the disappearance of uh, one of uh, of the daughter who was in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So it raises also many questions on how, what kind of protection uh, he benefited from. Elizabeth, do you think that being part of the establishment here is very uh, relevant in this case? Yes, it probably is. And so we have to remember this case in Cambridge goes back 20 years and, and uh, or more than 20 years. And, and the princess hasn't been seen in public since then. And the Cambridge police began an investigation and then um, it, it ended. Uh, nobody followed up. And um, so it, it seems they were told not to pursue it. And, and of course, if, if you investigate uh, potentially in, in a criminal case, the head of a foreign government. I mean, that is highly unusual. So it's it's not surprising that the government would have had a view on whether that investigation should be pursued. Um, so the 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 the, the double uh, tracks of this case is that we have the the head of a foreign government who is also a major investor and presence in the UK, and on top of that, the vi wife whom he is divorcing or has uh, already uh, divorced uh, by backdating uh, the the dates. And in fact. It's incredibly cruel, really. She, uh, Princess Haya, discovered that he had backdated the divorce to to have taken place on the anniversary of the the death of her father, who, as we all know, was king of of Jordan, mm. and so she is the the sister of the of the current king of of Jordan. Um, so it has all kinds of implications. So involving both Dubai, the UK, and Jordan. Um, so we'll all be watching this. Uh, it's it's rare that you get a criminal case involving the head of state, although uh, I think we, we'll all still keep watching the developments in the case of uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, and Khashoggi uh, uh, to see how that uh, turns Absolutely. out. And of course, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. in uh... That's right. <laughs> and perhaps one day Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> let us turn they to... They tried the... already, it didn't work. <laughs> Georgina, forget about it. No, I'm convinced it's going to come out. Let's... <laughs> Let's um, let that, that's my non-partisan opinion. Uh, let's turn to the world of publishing and uh, Woody Allen. Uh, so, of course, we know that Woody Allen accused of, of many things. Florent, give us this story. Yeah, so Woody Allen was 
ready to publish his memoir. I mean, at least a publishing house, a shed book uh, in, in the US, was ready to publish them. And then there was... You know, I mean, I think in his memoir, what I understand is he doesn't say I'm sorry, etc. He, he just Woody Allen explaining his version of the story uh, when... Uh, uh, of course, he, he married his stepdaughter. He married his stepdaughter. He has been accused by uh, another daughter of uh, abusing her. Uh, and this daughter is also the sister of Ronan Farrow, who was uh, the one who uh, exposed uh, the Weinstein affair. So, uh, and Ronan Farrow has written a book who has been published by the same publishing company, Hachette. So uh, there was a walkout of the employees uh, because of uh, uh, the publishing of this memoir. And Hachette uh, finally, I think it was like uh, yesterday or two days ago, I mean, it's really recent. And then Hachette uh, took the decision not to publish them. And what I find really surprising in the story is that they had the intention to publish them. I mean, you know, it's a Me Too era, uh, era period. It's uh, the Weinstein story. I mean, in every every country now has its, you know, like Me Too story. In France, it was the César, you know, it's kind of Oscar for French uh, cinema. They decided to attribute uh, the prize for best director to Ro Roman Polanski, who has been accused and who is um, asked by uh, the United States uh, uh, for um, uh, having abused um, an underage girl years ago. So, I mean, all this complex, in all this complex, you know, uh, you, you really wonder when people will really take seriously the fact that now we are in a different era and now you cannot just let this all powerful men give only their version of the story. We seem but to be ending where we began, Elizabeth. Yes, although it has to be said, Woody Allen hasn't been convicted by any court and it's uh, his word against her word. And there is so it he, I think, does have the right to present his side of the story. Her story has been heard. And and I, I think it we may or may not like Woody Allen. We may or may not believe um uh, either side of the story, but I think uh, in a modern democracy, both dis uh, both sides uh, deserve to be heard. And uh, we have to remember that the case was even dismissed; uh, it wasn't even um, pursued in the court. So it's uh, to to say that he somehow should not be heard. I think is is taking a bit too far. Then I mean, if he if his book were to be published, then we could all make up our minds as to who's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. I'm so sorry to end it there because there are so many questions, including: Do you suddenly have no talent if you're accused of historic crimes? Very interesting areas to go to, which we'll have to do off air because it's time for us to end. Many, many thanks to my guests, Florence Biederman, Elizabeth Braw. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Giacomo Harper. And our studio manager was Steph Chungu. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listening.